Hello everybody, welcome back to another episode of Talking Politics. Today we are interviewing uh, a buddy of mine who lives in California. His name is Michael. And uh, we'll start off by him sharing who he is. And uh, yeah, enjoy the episode. All right, welcome to the show, Michael. How are you doing? Good, Nick. Thanks for having me tonight. Oh, of course. Uh, thank you for being on the show. Uh, so, before we start, share a little bit about yourself. Cheers. Uh, I grew up in Southern California. Uh, high school, went to college at Cal Poly Pomona. Got my business administration uh, with a minor in contract management. Um, I didn't really know what I was doing up until I took some more contract management classes, and then I ended up getting uh, a job at an aerospace defense company, which uh, does a lot of government contracting. And so that's my, uh, you know, nine-to-five job as of right now. Other than that, um, on my free time, I try to go to Palm Springs, Vegas, snowboarding, or, uh, any, you know, live before the weekend. All right, and uh, how would you describe yourself politically? Um, I would say most of the time when I get asked that question, I would uh, veer it more towards the, you know, uh, moderate, moderately conservative. Uh, I, I am... You know, more inclined uh, for the Republican viewpoints of certain policies, but of course, they don't, you know, don't agree on all of them. In the same way, the Democrats, I would say, I'm, you know, somewhere towards the minor conservative. All right. So, you say you lean more right. It, what would you say specifically? Do you disagree with the right on? But, I'm sorry, with the right or the left? Oh, with the right. <laughs> well, uh, but we might have to, uh, you know, we might have to. Presume some assumptions right now. I'm assuming that we're, when I say the right, we're going to say that you know the you know the hard wing conservatives, and for those, I would say that I mean they still you know are trying to they still don't believe in climate change, or at least with the general scientific opinion about how man-made CO2 emissions can you know can affect you can help warm up the planet. Um, I don't agree with with those hard you know with those hard right conservatives. Well, I would say a more fair assumption is that a lot of them, I would say most conservatives do believe that climate change is an issue. I think where most people disagree on is the solution and how to act towards it. So a lot of a lot of people believe that uh, we let the free market handle it, and uh, we're already getting more and more electric cars yearly by itself, rather than why force regulation and then there's also people who disagree with the exact science so some people think it's happening but not to the extent that other people are saying it because there is mixed data out there so what is sure. what is your belief on how we should handle the climate change issue um well you, you touched upon a good subject you, you said oh, we, you know some opinions are you know maybe we should let the, the market handle it you know uh, competition you know, group force of the, of the companies trying to compete to create, like you said, a, a better electric vehicle, a more eco-friendly electric vehicle. Um, in the same way, you know, there's, you know, markets trying to create, uh, you know, more CO2-friendly machines for industries, you know, all those types of markets that are trying to, you know, cut back on the CO2 emissions. I would say that, you know, that, is, that could be one way. Um, I would say it's more, right now, it's more like a lot 
positive pair where that's kind of going to happen regardless. Um, I don't, as of right now, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think there's a lot of uh, government regulations on limiting R&D for, you know, those type of companies or limiting research development for, you know, companies that are trying to make, uh, you know, a footprint in that market. Um, but aside from that, I would say that, you know, larger forces could help. I would definitely think that, you know, less human, you know, less human consumption of buying cars that are, you know, high, you know, not as good for the environment. And, uh, you know, even plastic, plastic use, I think that's also another way we can cut down on, you know, on the climate change. A side note, though, for aside from this climate change, um, you know, different subsections of global warming, well, then there's ecosystems, uh, you know, dis- disturbances and whatnot. What do you think would be the most prevalent issue uh, for climate change out of, like, all those subsections that, you know, the world is currently dealing with? Well, I would say the CO2 emissions from just the the fossil fuels. So, uh, as you know, China and India are like the largest polluters, and America is only responsible for 15% of the carbon emissions. So, sure. but 15% is still a large portion. So, in theory, if we did, if we're talking about climate change and biggest effects. 25% of climate change is from uh, animal agriculture and the uh, other 75% is from fossil fuels and uh, basically uh, carbon emissions. So uh, I would say if we're doing it based off the amount, in theory, we would have to focus more on the fossil fuels, uh, converting cars to electric and moving towards that. So, staying on this subject, do you think there should be any government regulation in, uh, basically on either uh, the big oil companies or, or regulation on trying to get rid of all gas-fueled cars? Um, no, I mean, I would think that there would be no... I w- Defining regulations, um, I would think that you know the ones that are imposed by you know the EPA and the ones that are trying to limit our CO2 emissions. I would say it's good, uh, like for the government to you know, and especially for industries that are going to be mass polluting, uh, you know, a bunch of toxic fumes and whatnot, to create these you know plastic substances, the microchips for our phones, batteries, etc. Um, I think that some government regulations are you know instilling some sort of uh, deterrence for, you know, exceeding a certain CO2 emission when, you know, you're supposed to keep underneath a certain amount. I think that would not be, I would think that would be more beneficial than not. I think the government, especially state government, local governments can try to, you know, I would say probably try to decrease the use of plastic more so than CO2 emissions for the state and local government. You know, there's not much they can do, um, you know, for, for allowing, you know, importing cars in from other countries that are, you know, are not electric, that we're continuing to increase the CO2 emission intake by using those fossil fuel guzzlers. I think that could be served a little bit. I think the government could increase the tariffs on that, which I'm sure they already have, uh, you know, from the China, Korea, uh, Korea imports as well as the Japanese. Uh, but I also do believe that there should not be, obviously, too many regulations by the government and obviously prevents, you know, uh, competition within the capital market. It's not good for overall long-term growth and economy. So there, you know, there's, there's, there's 
I'm kind of both ways on this. I do think that the government can use the EPA um, as well as some executive orders to try not to or try to impede people from using so many CO2 cars and maybe plastic use and whatnot. But at the end of the day, it takes a lot. It's more for the consumer, more for the citizens, and you know, for the state and American citizens to kind of tackle that together if they really do want to see a change in their, you know, climate and as long as, or as well as their CO2 emissions of the country as a whole. All right, so I would say, so now let's talk a little bit bigger picture. So obviously uh, the Democrats or uh, progressives have proposed the Green New Deal. Uh, I'm sure you've heard of the Green New Deal. Right, right. <laughs> so, so a lot of uh, Democrats have are behind it and they support it. A lot of them are in support of a version of it. So what do you say to the people who are, I guess critics of it, but to the extreme that say there's really no purpose in the United States in forcing a change because it it can and probably will damage the economy if we try to force a change. And when we're only responsible for 15% and if countries like India, China, and a bunch of second and third world countries who have to burn plastic and have to burn fossil fuels for just heat in general. Right. So what what would you say to the people who think that we shouldn't do anything at all? What's the point of doing it if these countries don't follow? So, so we're gonna switch gears just a little bit. Uh, so I personally believe that the gov- the size of government should be fairly small. We should have some regulations, obviously, in areas that matter. Uh, what is your opinion on, I guess, how much the government should do? I guess within our personal lives. Well, yeah, uh, let me rephrase that. So I'm talking, I, I, I'm guessing, like, programs for our personal lives. So uh, one, of the presid- uh, one of the presidential candidates for the Democratic Party uh, has said that he thinks the gov- there should be government-sponsored marriage counseling. Do you think... <laughs> so... Before you laugh it off, uh, typically in families that where there's a single parent household, 
there, there's a higher rate of dropout, teen pregnancy, future divorce, poverty, and crime. So, do you think it would be worthwhile to for the government to have, I guess, free marriage counseling if it's going to improve future taxpayers and c- citizens, make a better country? Uh, it was Andrew Yang. Andrew Yang. Andrew Yang. Yeah. Kind of liked him until now, but that's what he proposed. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, do, I, do I agree with, with that? Do you know, think that the federal government should sponsor government counselors, you know, parent counselors for the betterment of the children or family, I guess would be the argument. Mm-hmm. So, so, first off, I would say no. Definitely not. Um, from a logical, from a logical perspective, the cost of having to do that, of setting up, you know, the bureaucracy, the implementation of legislation, making sure there's oversight, the offices, the you know, the employees, the benefits for these government employees that now you have to take into consideration. You know, that's there's going to, there's going to be a lot of politics and legislation going into that. Are these people? How long is this going to be last for? Is it appropriate by Congress? And which funds? How often will it be renewed, or is it going to be? Does it not have to be renewed? Like you know, like or for a certain amount of time? Are these points going to have tensions or whatnot? So aside from the bureaucracy of it, no. I mean, I think that would be definitely a shit show in regards to the financial cost of how much that is. The argument, I, I can't even think. I mean, it sounds like the only argument you're going to have is some pathos-related stuff that's going to say, oh, well, what about the kids? What about you know these poor, you know, single-parent families? You know, they. they the argument could be they deserve to have the government sponsor these counselors to help these families. Okay, well, there's all assumptions there. You're going to, one, assume that all single family parent households are going are need, you know, a need a counselor. They will need help. You know, there's plenty, and there's plenty that, that do need the help, and there's plenty that don't need the help, that do manage to get by, that do, you know, take care of their own thing. So that's one assumption that you kind of have to, like, figure out. The second assumption I would assume is, I mean, you're assuming that the amount of turnout you're expecting for these single-family, low-income, I'm assuming, low-income families who will need help from the government are also have kids, which are which seems like are already predestined to be troublemakers, that predestined to, you know, to cause, you know, to be criminals or to cause mischief or not to, you know, not be functioning, productive, contributing members of society. Well, obviously, obviously, it is a case by case situation, but there's actual studies that show that, like for example, dropout. They're they're two times or three times more likely to drop out than a student in a or than a kid in a two parent household. A teen pregnancy, two and a half times more likely to get pregnant as a teen.
for one counselor, that's going to be well over half a million dollars. And if you're going to tell me that one counselor can, can prevent, and I mean, at the same time, how do you, how do you quantify that? Okay, so like you think that a kid that goes to jail because he has a one-friend household, he commits crime, he's confiscated, mm-hmm. ten grand a year for prison expenses, right? Our taxpayers, or whatever. So I would say that you know definitely just if they're actually thinking about it, the costs are going to outweigh the benefits. I don't think the government, you know, it's nice the government wants to do that. It's nice that us as citizens want to do, have our tax dollars pay for this, but it, it doesn't make sense. This way doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense logically because you're also not going to reap as many benefits from the amount it's going to cost. And then just the uh, last note, I, I don't think the government should have, you know, it should have the power to use our tax, and that's the thing I didn't worry about, to use our tax dollars to pay for, you know, the prevention of these things based off a few stats, based off of studies or whatnot. I'm, I'm sure that there are plenty of kids out there who would greatly, uh, you know, benefit from this service, but the cost, you know, definitely outweighs the benefits, and it makes no additional sense for a government to uh, all right uh so what about the idea of this is more government i guess money being spent uh sh- do you think the government should subsidize moving costs for americans if they're moving for a job yeah so let's say for example someone who lives in oklahoma in their field, they can't find a job, or they can't find a job in what they're good at or what field they got a major in or whatever. For for a majority of Americans who are unemployed because there's not enough jobs in their area, aren't financially available or able to move, let's say, four states over for another job. Do you think the government should subsidize those costs to help more people working, which will ultimately add more taxpayers. Um, I mean, that's interesting. That's interesting, you know, Matthew, to what if. I think that... I would have, no, I would, I would have to disagree, unless, again, unless, you know, <clears throat> different, different factors. Unless employment is extremely high, and there really is, um, you know, out of the labor force, you know, people are actively seeking a job, and they, and they, I would say a good indication of that is maybe see how long these people have been in the labor force and have been actively searching for a job, but just have been unable to find a job. Uh, I think that's a good indication to find out if it would be fiscally reasonable to spend that much money. But I would say, I would say no. I would say that. Well, the, so it, it wouldn't, it wouldn't necessarily be. It wouldn't necessarily be the government paying out money like you have to raise taxes to pay for this. It's nece- it's like subsidized, so they get like they get to write off basically a thousand dollars of moving costs off their taxes. Sure. Um, so you want you saying that you know we we say not for taxes, but if we're subsidizing, if, if the federal government is subsidizing anything, where's that revenue coming from? One more time. You said it's not coming from taxes, that the subsidy wouldn't come from our taxes. It would basically say that they get to write off $1,000 off their taxes for moving. 
Well, see, that's totally different. If, if, you, if you're going to give the citizen the op or the opportunity to write off a thousand dollars off his own taxes, uh, I guess you know to make up for the transportation costs or the, re- the relocation costs. I would say, you know, I would say still no. I don't, you know, I don't. Well, for one, I think would it be helpful? Yes. But applying over a large scale, I think it could be very, very susceptible to, you know, fraudulent charges. You can be moving, you know, if you, if you, as long as you, I mean, I'm sure there's have to be guidelines implemented by the IRS, but you can move once a year, get a new job, and you're just, you know, you're writing off $1,000. But uh, I think the best way, if, if, if I'm getting where you're coming at to, I guess, salt or to help those people, those, you know, those uh, unemployed people who are still unable to find work after, you know, actively searching for a certain amount of time, I think the best way to help those people would to either produce more jobs in their city or their state, which obviously is going to be hard depending on what, you know, the industry is, or, like you said, try to help them get a different job elsewhere. Uh, I can't think of a better suggestion off the top of my head right now, but I I definitely would agree that it's the government's responsibility to move citizens around the moving citizens around just to you know give them a job I think there are a lot of other options that citizens can do prior to having to reach out to the government for that so would you say uh, having basically tax credits for uh, children for example and and other subsidies that we that the government gives out should should we not have those either? Uh, I'm, I'm, you say the subsidies, I'm, are you are we talking about the big ones here? Oh, what would you say for children this time? So, should there be a tax credit for children? If if people are having children, you get you get a tax break. Um, I mean, for that, that would, I think we're talking more IRS code and whatnot, but for children, I don't see why. It, it, it doesn't hurt. It, it doesn't hurt the economy, in my opinion. It doesn't hurt the average you know, consumer or, or even the government for having like, like 250 maybe a child. So having a couple hundred dollars off your taxes because you have a child. It makes sense. You're going to spend more money on that child. You're going to pay more taxes. Some of that's not going to be able to be you know, recouped at the end of the year, especially if you're filing your taxes diligently. Uh, so I don't see that why there would be. I don't see a problem with offering a tax credit for uh, for dependents. So a child tax credit is worth up to two thousand dollars. So we're talking double than it is for someone to move and basically where they're making money and their paycheck, there's taxes that go into their paycheck that goes into the government, you think that's more fiscally irresponsible than a possibly $2,000 tax credit for having a child who won't pay any taxes for possibly the first 16 to 18 years of its life? $1,000 tax credit and, and relative to that be beneficial? 
Yeah, how how is a child tax credit more beneficial or less bad than the moving costs? Um, so, I mean, if it, I mean, if I thought about this too, it's funny. So, you can't really, you can't really write off a deductible off the taxes if you don't have a job, right? If you aren't paying the taxes. Mm-hmm. So, I'm, assu- I'm assuming that you would have to do take advantage of the deductible after you work, after you get a job, after you file your taxes in March, or, or I mean in April. Um, I think that the $1,000 for that in terms of 2000 yeah, it would be helpful, but at the same time, you know, a lot of different cho- choices, but if you're going to up and move, I'll say, you know, what, what, are, the, what are the requirements for this $1,000 deductible? You got, is it only if you are relocating at 100 miles from where you currently live? Is it if you're within a certain, you know, mileage radius from from where, from your old residence? Um, I guess you'd say, we'll assume say at hundred or hundred miles, and you get to move it, you get to go, and at the end of the you get a job over there. That's a lot of still of, of cap, a lot of you know, you're investing in that you moving that you won't be able to find a job over there. Um, something else that just came to my mind. We're also assuming that you know you have to relocate prior to getting a job. I think a lot of, you know, that's gonna cost a lot of money if you're relocating and you're moving and you're not sure if it's a, you know, a definite job. Nowadays, you can search, you know, there's all these websites, you can apply online. You can definitely, you know, get interviews prior to even having to decide whether or not you have to, you know, spend that amount of money to relocate. Well, um, well yeah, well, so uh, I guess, in theory, the idea is more of you find a job, let's say online, like you said, like Indeed or whatever. Uh, you find a job and you're like, all right, this is in, I live in California, but this this job's in Washington or Colorado. Uh, I apply online and I go through the process and when they give me the job, me knowing that I will at least be able to save near $1,000 when I file my taxes next year, it, it may be more worth it for me to move over there and actually be able to work and provide a living. For state taxes, yeah, but for right. for federal, the federal taxes are the largest portion of your taxes to begin with. Right. So I would say that a thousand dollars, you know, for are we applying this to the to the zero to forty thousand dollar bracket? 
I would say a thousand dollars, yeah, would be you know very helpful and it would be very influential in a lot of lower to middle class income families. Um, you know, that is a lot of money for a lot of you know average Americans. So I would agree that that would be helpful. I think we would just have to you know go back and forth and share politicians in Washington. We'd have to go back and forth and bigger to determine whether you know you know cost benefit is it actually going to help? Can it, you know will people take advantage of it? Are there will studies show that this actually does help people relocate and, uh, and find a better job? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so yeah, I mean I could see it, it benefits, but as of right, as of right now, I don't think uh, you don't think enough people would uh, take benefit. Yeah, I don't think it's possible to to implement right now. Uh, I think in the future, especially if we do end up getting uh, a lefty for president, I think uh, you know that could possibly be on. Uh, on, on the bracket. However, it doesn't seem like there's a, you know there's a lot too much talk about unemployment as of right now. And I'm assuming that's because the economy is you know is and uh, that could probably open up open us up to a different topic, can't it? All right, and uh, so we're getting into the later portion of the show. So I'm going to ask you just some. I guess generally quick questions. I want to know if you agree, disagree, and explain why, obviously. And uh, I may have some follow-up questions afterwards. So, first one is, do you believe non-violent felons should get the right to vote after they do their time? Um, you, may have to, you may have to update me on the definition of a non-violent so, so someone who didn't kill anyone or assault or rape or child abuse, uh, let's just say tax fraud or, sure. you know what uh, I mean? So, that's a good question. I would say, um, I would say for a non-violent felony, I, would, I don't see why not, why they would not, you know, if they did repay their debt to society if they're very I would just say maybe not if they're on probation I would say that you would have to wait until obviously they're out in society and they're not you know not effing up anymore um, I'm sure this goes much to non-violent crimes uh, I would, you would do a couple you know drug related crimes as a non-violent yeah well uh, I would say I would say someone who who sold, I would say, an ounce of weed and got caught for it, and they they served time for a felony. That would be considered nonviolent. I would say selling drugs is considered nonviolent. Yes. I would probably disagree. I mean, with the with the minimal, I'd say, sure, marijuana because it's getting so you know legalized in those states now. But I would say maybe the still federally schedule one drugs, you know, like, you know, say coke, uh, methamphetamine, heroin, all that stuff, opioids. I think that would, I, I would consider that, a, you know, a violent crime. Because you know what you're doing if you're, if you're involving yourself in that kind of, in, you know, that business. You know that the effects that you're going to bring to, you know, your consumers and the risk that, and all that. Um, second assumption I would say is that people who are involved in drugs and, and I say maybe those types of crimes, probably aren't voting. They probably don't have a desire to vote. They're probably not a very, you know, they don't have high political efficacy at all. So, uh, but aside from 
than that, I would say that in most cases, I don't see why a nonviolent felon, uh, say tax fraud, like you mentioned, wouldn't be able to gain their right to vote again after they did pay their debt to society. Um, but yeah. All right, and this one's also to do with voting. Do you think when you uh, get your driver's license, should you be should it, should there be automatic voter registration? So when you turn eighteen, you're automatically registered to vote. Sure, I uh, I would agree that I can't see uh, I can't see what would be a negative a negative consequence of that. Um, you go in, you, you sign in, you sign up for your license or whatever. If you're 18, you get a new license. You have to go fill in the information that you need. Um, I think that that would be a good idea. I think the you know the amount of political advocacy in those in this gen, our generation, you know, you can call it whatever you call it, uh, Gen X, millennials, whatever. That population is not very you know as we see in a pattern, especially with the Bernie Sanders movement and all and all this stuff. They are becoming more, you know, involved in politics, but I think there wouldn't be a consequence of enticing people to at least have the ability to go out and vote. If they're already registered, if they're already, um, you know, at the the time you can choose your political affiliation, you're registered in that state, um, I don't see why not. You're going to have the ability to, you know, go to the, to go to vote on these, you know, important issues. I would think it would be more influential or more beneficial for these people or for the 18 year olds to vote for the, you know, the state and the local, uh, legislation. Cause obviously I think that most people only who are not really into politics only register or check and keep the register maybe once every four years. Right. And that's for the political or um, the presidential election. Yeah. So I think that would be beneficial and it'd be, you know, really good for the U S um, if we didn't, you know, entice, uh, young men and women to try and get their voter registration. All right. So the next question is, uh, it comes to term limits. What do you think about Supreme Court justices having term limits? So as in, well, let's just say two 10-year term limits and like maybe at max you can serve 20 years on the court. points that the founding fathers wanted to make was to make sure that the justices didn't have to worry about term limits, didn't have to worry about re-election, um, hence, you know, why the president has to be, has to appoint them and then confirmed by the Senate. I think that, that there should not be term limits for the Supreme Court justices. Um, the main reason for that is that, you know, most justices, and for, to have that life tenure, you know, they're going to be as non-biased as possible and in terms of, in regarding to, you know, interpretation of the law. Um, that, that's the whole point of the judicial system, not to be biased, you know, towards the president, Congress, or even uh, either branches of the government. <clears throat> I think that if there were term limits for the justices, their decisions, their interpretation of the law would be mainly um, about the status quo. It would be mainly about what is important to the citizens today and what it will be in the short, long term rather than what is the correct interpretation of the law and what, what it is intended for its interpretation to be. Uh, you know, as, as there were term limits, there have to be a bunch of different, you know, finance campaign laws to make sure they're not being backfunded by any of the more left or more right 
um, politician. So overall, I think I think the term limits would be you know detrimental to the actual purpose of the judicial branch and the Supreme Court, and that's to as non biasedly as possible interpret the law as it's meant to be interpreted, not how it any of the current society values or citizens want it to be interpreted. And having and not having term limits cuts back all that pressure on the justices because if you had to worry about all these different, you know, about the citizens having to, or, you know, <clears throat> congressmen or even citizens having to be voted, voting the justices, they would, you know, tailor all their opinions, all their law uh, making decisions for those people rather than for the overall good of the interpretation of law. So your fear is that uh, the justices may become politicians themselves at the end yeah, of the day. And, yeah, and that's, uh, I'd agree with that. And that's definitely not, you know, they're called justices from the judicial branch for a reason. They shouldn't be messing with the politics of having to be reelected. And that was definitely not the intent, you know, when the Constitution was drafted. All right, Anna. So I'm sure you've seen a lot on the news, or this was after the Parkland shooting was was when I think it was at its height, a lot of people saying, make the legal age for voting 16, drop it to 16 years old, let high schoolers vote. Uh, I'm one who likes to think differently. I, I'm, I'm someone who believes, uh, I believe in science where the brain isn't fully developed, or the average brain isn't fully developed by the age of 25. So would you be open to the idea of making the legal age to vote 25 years old when the brain is fully developed? Uh, definitely not. Uh, I'll, 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 I'll start answering this question with, you know, with why it shouldn't be 15. Uh, rather than just, like, the brain being fully developed or having the you know, capacity to understand and comprehend the choices you're making and the effects and whatnot, when you're that young and you still you're living with your parents, you you know you don't know you know you're through that adolescent phase and you're not thinking clearly, you're full of emotions, and whatnot. But most importantly, is you know the parents are home. I I highly doubt that there's going to be any you know highly political you know any kids having some political efficacy regarding those you know any types of issues. And if there were, they would be largely persuaded by the parents' views. You know, parents' perspectives, their political affiliations, it's going to pass right down to those kids, especially if, I would, I, I would think that even using kids as, or using teenagers, you know, before 18, 15 years old, is, it's more like, it's almost like a weapon where if you attract the, you know, of course, the politicians are going to try to get all the, you know, as many votes that have kids as possible. Why? Because then, of course, the parents are going to push their political views onto the kids. There's no way that you're not going to be able to prove or disprove whether or not a parent is telling a kid to vote a certain way and if they don't if they don't have that, that just prevents it causes a lot of a lot of opportunity for parents to kind of control their kids thinking and obviously that's going to you know hinder growth and whatnot on the opposite side of the spectrum 25 i would disagree with that i think 18 is good age if you're going to be drafted at 18 if you can join the military service at 18 <clears throat> i don't see why you wouldn't be able to vote as well you know vote for the uh, for the representatives to take us to war take or not to allocate funding to the defense and whatnot um so i would say that 18 is a good age as of right now and then 
So what if they change the age for drafting and the other stuff to 25 as well? I'm sorry? What if they change, like, the age for getting drafted and everything else that you can think of that the government basically can tell you when you turn 18, they changed it to 25 as well. Um, I mean, that, that has a lot of moving parts as well. I think that wouldn't be, you know, that wouldn't be logically, fiscally, you know, possible at, in most places. Um, you would, in, if you're saying that being drafted is, is now at 25, but if you're able, if you're not able to maybe join the military until you're 25, that's going to cause a lot of problems for the DOD, you know, a lot of problems for the government, which, you know, they, a large, probably one of the largest populations of the armed forces are in that age range. Mm-hmm. Um, I would, I would say that for, so for voting, definitely not, because again, you're limited, you're limiting, I guess you're basing an assumption that, you know, your brain, if your brain's not fully developed, then you can't think and act and do things that, you know, that are in the society kind of platform. I think that would be, you know, detrimental. I think that would be preventing, you know, um, diversity of opinion. If, you're, if you have to wait until 25 to kind of voice your opinion, because uh, let's be honest, before, most of us, before we're 18, right before we have the right to vote, we kind of didn't really care about the politics. In most cases, we weren't too much informed about it. We were, you know, we were obsessed with our own lives, our adolescent lives, the high school, all the partying and whatnot, going and moving off to college. So it's definitely not something that, younger, under age 18, people would be able to, you know, be able to responsibly carry out their duty. And that's what I think of it. You know, it is a duty, it is a privilege that we're mm-hmm. able to vote, to be part of this democracy. And being under 18, you're not going to make the most out of that privilege. You're not, you know, like you said, fully developed. You're going to make mistakes. You can't, you know, you're going to be making so many mistakes. You don't want to make them for the good of society. And then on the other hand, you don't want to prevent or hinder growth in society or to suppress any diversity of opinions and that's kind of what politics kind of does if done the correct way you're able to you know able to have a civil conversation and not really more arguments with more of debate all right i get that uh to finish off the show we're gonna we're gonna talk about i guess one of the more controversial topics going on so right now the big controversial thing is immigration. So, what is your stance on? Uh, I'd list a couple things: uh, border security, uh, dreamers, and what do you think we should do with the other undocumented immigrants who are trying to come into the country currently, and? who are already here, who've been here for a little bit, but they're not necessarily dreamers. Sure. Um, let's see, I'll probably name off all those. I think, uh, for start off, border security, um, if we're going to look at it from maybe the Trump administration viewpoint, the, you know, border, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't myself wouldn't call it to a national or declare it a national emergency at the border. Um, I think it is an issue. I think that our our border security can be on the southern border, we're assuming, <laughs> it needs to be increased, um, mainly because of the influx of, you know, immigrants that are going to be coming from the southern, South America, Central, and Mexico. Um, I think that the amount of money that this that Trump administration is trying to 
um, funnel into the border security, even trying to declare a national emergency, trying to take funds from the you know FEMA to direct into that, even you know trying to stall a government shutdown in order to get that money. I think that you know irrational. I think if you're all if the country itself doesn't want to allocate that money towards it, it probably won't happen. But you did get a uh, you know the administration did get a sizable amount. I think in, in terms of exactly how to do the border security. Building a wall is unreasonable. In most cases, you know, there are natural barriers that prevent walls to be built in a, you know, a regular fashion, and people can still try to cross. At the end of the day, if, if the Americans want to cross that bad, bad enough, they want to escape whatever life they're running from, they will try to find a way. I think the best way to deter that, um, in my opinion, this could be you know, a little bit, uh, a little bit you know, too radical, but I would simply think that Deploying drones, or at least drone sensors, and, and I know we have the technology within the DOD, especially from you know, the work that I do. And deploying these drones, these sensors that have the ability to you know uh, <clears throat> surveil you know hundreds of miles compared to the technology we used to have, it doesn't call for a wall. It doesn't call for for a physical barrier. I think there's a lot of things with the aerial drones and the information that we have now that we can detect people who are trying to cross um, and then dispatch units or troops or, or border patrol to go and handle that um and then you mentioned and then we can talk about the the dreamers so i, I think correct me if i'm wrong was it recently i probably last thing was the couple years ago where was the trump administration trying to deny dreamers was that is that correct uh, less dreamers in, in the country he wanted to change he wanted to get rid of daca and basically change it up and change specific specifics of the of the DACA law. Right. Um, so if I, and if I'm correctly assuming, I think that some the major components of the DACA, DACA, DACA law is that you're going to, you know, um, you're going to be on your best behavior, not become a criminal or anything like that. You're going to be going to school. You're going to be, you know, not causing harm to society, but more so helping it. And then I believe is that after you you graduate or whatnot, you you can apply for uh, expedited citizenship. Does that sound right? Uh yeah. So th- it, there's a whole pathway to citizenship citizenship that's set up for it. And sure. uh, so, so so I think uh, oh sorry go ahead. No no all you. I I'm not in I'm not against the you know the DACA. Uh, program or that that kind of legislation that's meant to give the uh, you could say the uh, I would say that it would it does give immigrants who are trying to uh, give what you know their intelligence or knowledge their their hardworking whatever to back to society through uh, through the use of gaining education I'm all for that I think education is really important no matter where you come from in order to Especially if you're going to a different country, going to that country's education system is going to be vastly different than the country you're coming from. Um, I'm not against the program overall. I think there could be, uh, I, know, I know there are some loopholes that could probably be exploited by, you know, the immigrants where you can come. <clears throat> you do come to the country through that program and eventually you, you, you don't abide by it. You fall off the path of citizenship and then you kind of just don't follow through with it. Um, I know at my school, at my university, Capoe Pomona, Especially after the Trump administration came out, um, came out with uh, publicly saying that they wanted to decrease the DACA, 
uh, program, maybe change up the requirements or whatnot. My California Pomona University president, she emailed the entire school to reconfirm, because in a California state, you kind of, I guess you have to do this with that many people, or DACA dreamers. She had to ensure that all of the dreamers at my school were not going to be kicked out of the program and consequently kicked out of the country, that the school would do everything they can to protect these students and blah, blah, blah. I thought that was kind of weird for a, for a public university to come out with that. You know, obviously it's very left uh, viewpoint. But I'm not, like I said, I'm not against it. I think as long as they're not doing anything to uh, harm, you know, the, you know, the, the society, the, if they're, as long as they're contributing, I don't see a problem with offering a certain amount of immigrants this opportunity. Um, it just comes to the point, though, if you're trying to let too many, uh, you know, it comes to the point of, I think, fiscally conservative. If, if it costs too much money to continue to sponsor and subsidize these, uh, these immigrants' education, then you're kind of banking on the part that they're going to stay, remain citizens, get a good job, and start paying taxes. And then again, that kind of has to do with a lot of statistics and I guess studies. But uh, what was that third issue? That one was more so, interesting that you raised So... So undocumented immigrants who are here currently, and what would you say they're not criminals right now? Other, than, the only crime they've done is crossing the border illegally, and they're just living here. They don't qualify as dreamers, and they're just living here. Sure. Like I, I used to, I used to work at a restaurant, and half the cooks were undocumented immigrants who were getting paid in cash. What do you think about that issue? California, I know, you know, we both are probably, uh, I've been faced with, you know, undocumented immigrants in a lot of the workplaces, and, um, you know, we'll say mostly fast food, restaurants, um, you know, farmers, you know, across the, the, the south, southwest, always hire undocumented immigrants, because like you said, you know, they're cheaper and they pay less. Um, I, obviously, from, from just in a, from a taxpayer citizen standpoint, I think that undocumented immigrants who are not actively seeking to legally gain citizenship, um, you know, if they're not doing that, if they're not, like I said, contributing to society, to, to this is to our country, I should say society in general, but to, you know, their state, to the city, to this country, then it does not make logical sense for them to be able to continue to stay in this country, you know, be able to, you know, reap the benefits without kind of paying any other undues. Um, that being said, you know, I, I would I would probably mm, I would probably say that the undocumented immigrants who are getting paid in cash and stuff like that, it could be good for business owners, especially small businesses who, you know, they need that capital, human labor to kind of key off some of their, you know, their costs. But overall, I don't think it's going to, you know, it doesn't, it, it kind of, causes them to remain undocumented. You know, if, they're being, if they have a job, if they're getting paid in cash, if they're continuously getting paid in cash, you know, they don't have to pay taxes. The IRS doesn't even know that they're living with their cousins or with their family. So that kind of creates this soft, comfortable space for them to not try to gain citizenship. Um, granted, you know, citizenship processes, depending on how you look at it, can be very difficult and strenuous and long. 
but again, if you're not going to be seeking to legally gain citizenship and you're just kind of working for cash, that's going to overall be detrimental to our society. All right. Well, that, that's all the questions I have for you on that. Uh, I, I guess yeah, my... I, I, I have a follow-up question on that. I mean, obviously, the recent ice raids um, in the, the south, south, mid, southwest, southeast area, you know, they I think they said that they arrest over 600 undocumented immigrants who are illegal staying here. Mm-hmm. What do you think, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to ask you two parts. One, what do you think about the actual, you know, deportation or the arresting of these citizens? Do you think it's legal? Do you think it's in within our... So as of right now, it is the country's legal right to deport any undocumented immigrant for any issue. So when it comes to that, I think that's okay. But in my personal opinion, I believe if you're here, even if you're working for cash, uh, I think America was built when when it comes to immigration. Most immigrants come here undocumented or documented come here to build a better life for their family. So I just believe that they're if they're here even if they're working for cash, a lot of times they are they have a better life than they would have if they would have stayed in their country. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think their lifestyles would increase. And we're and if we're talking about uh, improving America, I guess, like improving society in America, even if they're getting paid in cash, they're still spending that money in the United States. It may not go to the government for the government to spend. They're still adding to the economy. Sure, yeah, and that way eventually, you know, it will be able to circulate itself, and, and although they're not paying taxes themselves, they do still have to uh, spend that, you know, their consumer spending will increase somewhat of the economy um and then a second question for that what do you think about the uh, i guess you could say the the execution of how these raids were carried out and by that i mean um referring to the you know the left narrative of that that we are that the uh, the ice raids the result of it were, wasn't to make this country safer or to protect our borders it was more so to separate families in order to deter more immigrants um, to deter them from not entering the country in hopes that this separation of families would deter other immigrants. So are you asking if I believe the narrative from the left or if I Uh, think... I would would say, uh, what what do you... I said, do you think that is an accurate narrative the left is trying to paint? And what do you... you, how, How would you react based off your opinion on, the, on you know, how the country should act when that happens. Well, so, when it comes to the raids, and I think if they, if they haven't committed a different crime other than crossing the border, I don't think we should be actively searching for them. Obviously, obviously at some point, we're going to have to do something about it. But I don't think that's like a primary issue. And what the left is trying to 
say about it being to scare away other immigrants. I think the only person who will know that are top officials in the government, if that's like their actual plan. I personally don't think that that was the goal of it. But I'm not. Right. I can't read Trump's mind. I'm not 100% sure. Who knows? Like, I don't think anyone could read Trump's mind. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah, I think I, I think I agree with that. I think you know, as long as I mean the, the intent of the ICE director and all and all the resources going into this isn't to separate families. It's not to, and it's definitely not to separate families in order to deter people. I think they're just doing their job. I agree with you. If they're you know actively searching for you know the you know, criminal immigrants. The ones who are breaking the law, maybe the ones that are have been remaining in the country undocumented for a while. But I agree. I, I think maybe if you're going out of your way to search for them, especially targeting certain, you know, maybe family, families, larger families, then that would probably be not the best case. Mm-hmm. And and you gotta imagine what it would do to the kids to see their parents dragged off or crazy sure. stuff like that. And, and uh, everyone hates to see that. I think. Both owls would agree that they hate seeing that. Oh yeah, I, and, and I would agree too. I think both owls are not are not. No one is going to disagree that you know those those images and videos of the kids being torn apart. You know that's that. They're all going to agree about that. They're all going to agree that it's unfortunate and that it shouldn't happen. However, if you're going to come into right, <clears throat> this is the right perspective on it. If you're going to come into the the country. Do it in a legal way, okay? You can't do that. You you have to escape that bad. You need to get away from your from that country and immigrate to America. You're carrying that risk. You have that burden. Where if you are going to come illegally, not seek asylum, not at least start the pathway to citizenship, which is really hard. I understand that. You know, it's overcrowded. There's always with a lottery system or whatever you call it now. <clears throat> but if you are going to come into this country illegally or any country for that matter, you're going to for most countries, I should say, you're going to have that risk of being detained or deported and separated by your, your kids because you're being arrested. So that's, I mean, I, I would say that's one of the, <clears throat> one of the opinions on the right. I do, I do agree with, meaning not that we should be doing these raids, that we should be performing it in this way, but it, there is an adherent risk that most, if not all immigrants know about. If I come into country XYZ illegally, I may be separated by my family. So I think that's, mm-hmm. you know, that's just something that we'll eventually have to deal probably within the next couple of years as uh, there's more, you know, more stories and narratives about these kids and families being torn apart. But if you think about it, it's not really going to be in the republic. I guess if you're going to look at Republicans trying to, you know, cut spending, they're not going to want to continue separating these families because you're going to have to put these kids in, you know, the, in the system, social services, foster care. We're going to, and when we're paying for, you know, these kids, we're, we're going to be paying for their medical care. We're going to be paying for, you know, their welfare and whatnot. So overall, separating kids from the legal immigrants, we will start increasing the cost of our, you know, our social welfare programs. So eventually, it's not, it wouldn't be in anyone's, especially the, the rights, like, right mind to want to go and do that. Eventually, it will catch up with them fiscally. You know, I, I agree. So... When it comes to the 2020 election, uh, you say you're conservative-leaning. Do you see yourself voting for Trump, or do you see yourself possibly voting for one of the Democratic candidates? So I think, I think 
registered as a conservative. Um, but yeah, I mean, to go back on an earlier question, I would say, you know, fiscally, I'm conservative. Um, most of the, you know, the way that we think about logically and if it makes sense with fiscally and whatnot. But at the same time, I would say more moderately, um, moderately conservative towards the more of the social, I guess, I guess more of the social public policies. Me, I wouldn't, I mean, I'm not going to cut spending dramatically to a bunch of social welfare programs. Obviously, a lot of people depend on that. You're going to have to wean them off of it rather than just cut it directly. Mm-hmm. Um, back to your question, <clears throat> I would say that rather, right now, I am pro- I'm undecided. Uh, I did I did not vote for Trump in the 2016 election, um, and one of the and, and I'm, and I'm a, probably an uh, advocate for this, but <clears throat> one of the reasons why I didn't vote, and I always wanted to say that I do advocate to do so is because California is obviously a, a blue state. And it's going to probably remain a blue state for a lot of election cycles to come. Um, regardless of that, of course, it's our duty to vote for the presidential election. But if, if you really do think about it, you know, California will be a Democratic state. New York will be a Democratic state. I don't, and I don't care if all the hedge fund Wall Street people in New York are going to be voting, you know, red. Overall, it's going to be a blue state. And... That's a, that could be a different discussion or question, how the Electoral College is set up and how that is improper for our society currently at this state. But well, I'll, I'll, I'll ask you about that right now. Do you think the Electoral College, do you think we should keep it? Should we change it up? No. no. I, so I actually wrote a paper about this in college. Um, it was one of my, I think, my freshman, sophomore English papers. It was persuasive, argumentative paper regarding, you know, what do you what do we want to change? And my topic, which I proposed, was to uh, modif- not totally rid of the Electoral College, because that's pretty much the basis of our democracy and how it's been set up for hundreds of years, but to modify it. Um, you know, that looked, in my opinion, the Electoral College was only meant for the size of the U.S. and for the population of the U.S. at, that, at the moment which the Constitution was drafted. And since then, as the Constitution is a living document and it will continue to change as the world changes, our views, our, our uh, values, and whatnot. The Electoral College has not really changed at all since, since the creation of it. And that, I mean, that there is, a, you know, it's very easy to have, uh, you know, misrepres- misrepresentation of people's votes. Um, <clears throat> you need, and, and something that I think that misrepresents the votes, you know, that, that kind of is goes along with the election cycle is gerrymandering, right? So, mm-hmm. these go- so the governors, I think, I forgot how often they have to do it. I think it's 10 years, 5, 10 years. They have to redraw the district lines, and that's based off not only the uh, citizenship consensus, about the current population, the different demographics and whatnot. And this is all, you know, tactically, skillfully done. No, no, no Democratic or Republican governor is going to go in with, you know, with his help from his aides, his congressmen, women, and they're going to draw lines arbitrarily. They're going to do so in a strategic manner. And that in itself just, it kind of, it brews a lot of just mistrust, misrepresenting of, of, of what, of what the intent of the Electoral College was to do. And on top of that, um, I'll, I'll let you respond to that. Would you agree that, that the redrawing of district lines and trying to change the amount of people that are in one district in order for it to have more or less electoral, uh, votes? Well, what do you so, think about that? so when it comes to the gerrymandering, I think 
I think that that's a big issue. I think we got to figure out a way to have districts. Districts do need to be redrawn, obviously, because population, society, it all changes. But we need to find a way where when when you see pictures of districts, it doesn't look like a smiley face is one district. You know what I mean? Like, right. it, sh- it shouldn't be like that. It should... I, we need to have a nonpartisan committee make the districts, but then again, who decides who's on the committee? How how do we make sure they're nonpartisan? So that's always obviously going to be an issue, but we right. we need to figure out some way to do it. But I I also don't think when it comes to electoral college, as much as I don't like it, I also don't like the idea of, let's say. Los Angeles, San Francisco, and New York City deciding the election just by population vote. Right, right, and that's and I think that's one of the points I, I uh, brought up in my my paper is that the, the the population side, you know, that is also very skewed. You can't be having, you know, like you said, these these huge cities have more of a power, more power, more electoral votes to you know for a very national uh, election than Rhode Island, right, or Massachusetts. And those states alone, even by geographical, like that, the, the, pop, the population is not even close to any of the cities. But at the same time, this, a state itself has less electoral votes than you could say, you know, a, a half of, or I guess even SoCal of California, right? So that that can be, you know, like you said, a huge you know, drawback. Like, uh, another well, huge one. Well, Go let ahead. me respond to that real quick. So I think that's. It's not just a federal issue. I think another issue is also at the state level. So, like, you have California, for example, when it come, when they're voting on state laws, you have a city with a huge population like Los Angeles deciding on laws that's going to affect the lives of farmers in Bakersfield, you know? Exactly. And, that goes, and, and there's a lot of different bills that, can, that are, like, controversial due to that. Um, you know, the the gas tax. I mean, a lot of people thought that was going to be you know appealed, taken off, and it actually got passed again. So we're going to spend more money on combating homelessness and fixing up roads that don't get fixed. But um, I would I would also want to bring up a point where there's there's no nothing in the constitution, nothing, and I believe actually there may be some states that actually have required that the uh, the um, the electors. Right, the ones that go to the, they have to vote in which that they were, um, they have to vote the way in which the constituents or the people in the district wanted to vote, right? Yep. But in 90% of cases, right, or more, you can send, you can vote and you want to send all these 52 electoral votes from California and you want to give them to the Democratic uh, candidate. Or even say in the primaries, right? Where <clears throat> that doesn't make sense because nowhere in the Constitution, nowhere else, does it say that they have to follow that. You can be an elector. You have you have this this uh, <clears throat> instruction that says, okay, we want you to put this many. We want to put, we want you to put this fifty-two coins in this box. Nowhere does it say that I have to put these fifty-two coins, all of them or any of them, in this box. I can put them in that box or in that box. And that there's no sort of there's no there's no way to assure that they're going to be voting the way that 
the citizens' constituents wanted them to vote. And even, I mean, I think that itself, I know they're chosen at random, but that leads to a huge opportunity for them to be, you know, um, to be coerced, for them to be threatened, for them to be paid off into spending those electoral votes in a certain way. And I think that's a huge, huge one, other than the misrepresentation of all the uh, districts or population size. You can go and vote for whoever you want, you know, and there's definitely nothing in the law that tells you that you have to follow the direction of your voters. So that's a huge uh, mishap in that system. Mm-hmm. Well, I know there is some states that have, like, if you go against the voters, you will get fined like a thousand dollars like some states do have laws but if i'm not mistaken most states do not have any laws against it so right. a lot of times they just vote the majority like they just vote on what did the majority of the state vote for that's what i'm gonna put down right and you know the counting i think it's so funny too that one of the one of the um one of the results of electoral college is that I think it's happened. Yeah, I cited this in my paper three times. Uh, three times in American history, where I think I'm sorry, it's four times in American history where the popular vote of the nation itself exceeded the, you know, the uh, what do you call it? The popular vote and the electoral vote. Is that what you call it, Nick? For. It's for for when uh, the. It's when the is when you go and you I don't know where I was going at right at this point. Well, so are are you talking about times when the electoral vote is for oh, a different right. candidate and then yeah. the popular vote is for the other candidate? Right, where where the popular where the candidate won the popular vote, right? But, but they lost. lost the electoral vote. They lost the electoral so even though that that more than half the country wants this certain individual, this party affiliation to be the president for the next four years, it comes down to the how the electoral college functions and how the candidates have to maneuver around this system in order to get the electoral vote. And by that, I mean you have to strongly campaign in the swing states, in the swing states, right? With the ones that are going to be purple, they're going to be either red or blue, you don't know, depending on, you know, candidates depending on the time where it's at you know iowa's been blue it's been red you know florida has been red it's been blue that causes a lot of um a lot of focus and attention to be put on those swing states where only those swing states are going to be heard of uh regarding the constituents what they want you can see the candidates going to these states trying to promise that more jobs for states like iowa illinois okay more jobs we're going to vote for you it's not going to give any of the other states any sort of focus for the types of, you know, for the types of issues or things that they want to see and that, and the things that want to be done in the country by the candidate. Uh, you know, you're never you're not going to see Donald Trump, although there has been some rallies. You're not going to see him come to California to campaign yeah. and have rallies. You're going to see him in the southern states. You're going to see him probably in the Midwest states. And now, since he thinks he can start winning these swing states, he needs to stop tweeting that. But he needs to. You know, he doesn't need to focus on any of those states and, you know, vice versa with the Democrats. So another unfortunate, miss, you know, uh, outcome of the electoral college is, you know, having that focus not on all the states equally, not contribute to their population. But like you said, they're getting listened to because they're swing voters. Either they have more population, which means they have more votes. 
and it just kind of you know skews out the most common people who want their voices heard. Well, yeah, well, uh, for a lot of people, there's a lot of people that say the reason Hillary lost the election is because her time spent in the swing states were weren't even close to the amount of time as Trump spent. Like, she didn't even step foot in Wisconsin during the campaign trail. Right. Like, right. that's going to pose a problem, especially because Wisconsin's a swing state. Right, exactly, and you can't... So, <coughs> So, but one of the benefits I do see from the Electoral College is that even though Hillary won the popular vote, it it didn't silence the voices of people of Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan. Because, uh, like, the population in Los Angeles County and New York City are, like, those two combined are more than like over 40 countries or 40 states right. sorry 40 states combined you know right so obviously you want to figure out a system where you do have those smaller states have a voice that's comparable to the big cities exactly I agree and it's going to take a while before you know it's been this long since you know the inception of the electoral college that we haven't I mean we find ways to point them out or point out what's wrong with it and stuff like that but in regards to trying to make it less I would say I don't know controversial make it less skewed make it less overall just unfair it, it might it might be you know it might be a better route I think the um, I think within the next 20 years we, we might see a more progressive candidate or even within congress more progressive you know, freshmen, you can call them, as, as some people have called the, you know, the, you know, the new congressman, woman of Congress, they probably will start trying to change things, or, you know, slowly but surely will try to change things like that. You know, they've talked about having, trying to go in the, you know, Washington and reform everything and kick out the dinosaurs and all that stuff, but I do really think that most of the time those freshmen are kind of overstepping where they don't really understand that, it does, you know, it takes a lot more than just one term to kind of formulate those kind of bonds. Um, you know, and trust with the American people and your constituents, but also with, you know, the other congressmen and other veterans and older gentlemen and women of, of the Senate and Congress. So eventually, hopefully, it can be resolved, but not anytime soon. I highly doubt it. So what is, are, are you familiar with uh, ranked choice voting at all? Ranked choice voting? Yeah, so it's... It's essentially where each voter, they rank their top three candidates, so one, two, and three, and every voter's first choice is tallied. And if one candidate receives over 50% of the vote, as, or over 50% as their number one choice, they win the election. If no candidate wins it, hits the majority threshold, then the candidate with the fewest amount of one votes uh, gets eliminated, and everyone who put that that candidate as their one vote, it moves to their number two choice. So, and then they retaliate with those people's second choices. So you have more. I guess it. A lot of people didn't vote for Gary Johnson, for example, because he was a third party candidate. But if you can have him as your number one choice, and 
And then if he doesn't, if he has the fewest amount, then it goes to your number two choice. So you don't feel like your vote's completely wasted. You could basically have a second try. So it sounds like it sounds like it sounds like a loser who doesn't really want to who doesn't want to confess that they lost, so they still hope that they have some sort of say. Well, uh, it seems like it seems like that it would, that that system that that would be more, mostly benefit the the third party candidates, the more the outliers, the you know the Bernie Sanders, the rather than you know it, it would it would, I think the reason one of the reasons why it's not like that is because it would probably unfairly you know suction off a lot of the votes um, where you know from the, the obviously the two prime primary uh, party affiliations. And I th- well, and let me ask you this question: Do you think that a third-party candidate is going to be able to win a presidential election within the next twenty, thirty years? With the I current system the way- we have, I do not believe so. The third-party candidate? Uh, I I don't think a third-party candidate can win in the next twenty years with the current system we have. But that's why the right. idea of the ranked choice voting is. You can still vote for the third-party candidate and not feel like your vote's wasted when they only get, let's say, 20%, and then the other two candidates get 40 So then they get dropped, and then let's say you voted Gary Johnson, but your second choice would have been Hillary. Your vote now switches to Hillary because she was your number two choice. Right, and it, yeah, I, I, I would agree that would, it would help with the third-party candidates. And I think one of the info videos that I've seen on Facebook recently where it kind of breaks down the electoral college did raise that as one of the better replacements um, to, you know, kind of allow those third-party candidates, you know. And there's, you know, there, I, I would agree that we would not be able to see a third-party candidate, uh, independent, I guess you would say, win an election in, tw- in the next 20, 30 years. But there is a trend, you know. There's been a trend where more and more... Third, I wouldn't say third party because Bernie Sanders is technically a Democrat. He's still called himself. So I would say that you know the pres- the current system we have now, it kind of it really hinders a third party candidate ever getting that kind of momentum. I think mm-hmm. it's mostly now always going to be conformed into the two party system, which is kind of almost you know, unescapable. You're always going to have these two parties pushing these policies. It's not they're, they're never. I would say it's more like uh, ideological polarization, where the left is going to start pushing all these left, and there's not going to be, you know, there's very few, if any, that are going to be more moderate and can maybe concede to some of the right. And vice versa, I don't think there's too many, you know, polarized right-wing conservatives that will never come to a consensus or concede with any, of you know, a liberal. And I wouldn't even say that's more so because it's <laughs> that maybe some of the policies can be very conflicting and they're not going to be able to concede at all. But there are a wide range of policies, I think, that are, uh, the only thing that is stopping from the kind of uh, bipartisanship that you know, Congress and the country needs is just the fact that they're called differently. And, you know, Democrats, Republicans, and that these stigmas are created that Republicans have to believe in these ideals. And if you don't believe in, you know, anti-abortion, if you don't believe in having guns rights then you're not a republican and therefore you're castigated against you know not on the other side in the same way if you're a liberal and say that oh well i mean i'm down for social reform and blah 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 but you know i don't believe in abortion 
all of a sudden you're you're, you're outcasted from liberals. You're not a real Democrat, and all. So party polarization and their ideologies <clears throat> that needs to kind of stop too. That's kind of causing a lot of gridlocking in Congress as well. Um, eventually, it's going to have to be curtailed. But that's also a little my two cents on how Congress is causing a lot of the gridlocking as well. Well, yeah. Well, with the polarization of the two parties, I think the only chance for a third party to win an election, it's going to be a brand new party. It's not going to be the Libertarian or Green Party. It's going to be probably like a moderate party, like JFK liberals or uh, Bill Clinton type liberals. Bill Clinton, if you look back at his policies, he was very moderate compared to the Democrats running for president now. So uh, I'm sure... That's probably the closest, because a majority of Americans are physically conservative and socially liberal. So, sure. so that's yeah, probably that's the closest thing we'll get. But, sense. but even if there was a party created, then you would need the popularity for it to grow. It's, it'd be very tough with the current system we have. Like that, it's been Republican versus Democrat since Abraham Lincoln. I think what's the closest I can't even think um, it was a long work day but I think one of the closest that a third party candidate has ever gotten to um, as a percent of the popular vote I think it was like almost 20% and I was, I was, I was probably back in you know back in the early 1900s I, I believe it was maybe it was William McKinley maybe it was one of those but yeah I mean it's definitely a trend that could happen um, it, I agree that it would be more so to a, a moderate you know, moderately conservative, more so than, um, you know, being so left or right-winged. Um, <clears throat> I guess to, to finish this, this conversation off for the night, Nick, I know you're pretty tired over there in Virginia. Yeah. Um, so one last question is that, do you, do you uh, agree with, <clears throat> I would say, do you, what do you? What is your opinion about the way that I'm not even going to call it left or right or even use the words like narratives? How would you, how would you characterize how the media has been reporting events over the last couple of years? I mean, I would say maybe since 2016, as that was a huge spike of a certain amount of you know reporting and ways of reporting were, were started. Well, I, I think reporting on both sides of the aisle have been pretty extreme. Like, like if if you're someone if you're someone who votes or who watches just Fox News, you are obviously going to vote Republican because there's no way you watch only Fox News and not think Democrats would be the worst thing for the country. But if you if you only watch MSNBC or CNN, there's a pretty good chance you're only going to vote Democrat because you think Republicans are trying to take away your health care and have you die on the street, you know? Like, like, both sides are just so polarized. Or, like, I personally, I don't, I don't watch the mainstream media. The only time I watch mainstream media is just to see just what's currently being said on both sides but i get most of my information from like a down down the middle 
uh, sites like uh, Reuters. Reuters is a good non-biased website. Right. Yeah, I read those. I read the Thomas Reuters a lot too. Uh, I agree. I would say that they're. Um, you, you watch any of any of one or the other side, you're going to start thinking and, and believing in those types of reporting. Um, I would also probably take it to the point where it's. it's <laughs> And, and I'm actually going to steal uh, one of these one of the Ben Shapiro's moments where he has he broke it down. Um, I would have to say that most reporting from the mainstream media, like you said, is, is totally skewed. Um, a, lot, a lot of the logical conclusions are drawn from you know simple things. I think one of the most recent ones, and we don't have to start going down this topic, but they would start. Um, I guess you would say that the, the more liberal mainstream media would start characterizing. Um, characterizing Trump, they've already characterized Trump as being a racist, right? But after the shooting uh, right in El Paso, because he was white, it, it turned into a white supremacist terrorist thing. It turned into, automatically, it turned into, because he was white and because he confessed that he was a, a, a white supremacist, therefore Trump was all for it. You know, they, they were accusing Trump of supporting it. They're accusing, you know, they're already starting to paint narratives that his tweets, his words, have been in, in, in inciting violence and all. And, and, you know, the logical thing is, like, that could be true if you're looking at just left mainstream. However, if you, you know, the things that are said, the, the things that are, are said by Trump, I don't think any of it has ever incited violence or has made someone go out to, to commit that shooting. I think unless you are actively calling for violence, and it's not really incitement, I think it's more so it's the, how the the individual interprets it. You know, there's the, the shooting with the, the the shooter that went and shot up the congressman baseball game. You know, because and he said he was a supporter of Bernie Sanders. No one starts talking about how he was white too. No one starts talking about how oh the Democrats' views and policies are causing this, these shooters to happen. When you know the other shooter, I believe it was in was it in Ohio. Yeah, he was I a mean, Warren supporter. They, they, the, the manifesto said, oh, yeah, you know, this, I, I'm not, I didn't do this for, I didn't do this. I actually, I'm a Democrat. I voted for Kamala Harris. I just, uh, yeah. So people can't keep continuing. Like they can if they, you know, if they're able to back up with evidence. But without any evidence, you can't keep saying that a certain people, a certain person's ideas or words that they're saying are causing people to act out violently unless they are actively inciting violence. And I think it's probably safe to say that. More most of the time, it's always going to be the left trying to say that the uh, that you know that the white supremacists are backed by Trump and all this stuff. When you know that it's kind of a lot of assumptions that kind of cause everyone else to go in circles. So well, eventually, yeah. Well, using like in my opinion, using their their definition of Trump's rhetoric is responsible for violence. You could say the same about their rhetoric. Or, against Trump saying that like uh AOC she said that the the camps or whatever you want to call them at the border the detention centers are like uh concentration camps like Nazi concentration camps and then you have in uh Tacoma Washington an attack at an ICE facility who specifically said like he wants to get rid of these concentration camps Right, right. And, and that's like, not going to be as focused by the media. 
it, it's, it wasn't focused, but I also don't think that she's responsible for the shooting. I, I think, I think we shouldn't be equating words with violence because then we get to dangerous ground where may, should we start, like if we ask them, should we start regulating the speech that people say then? Like if you're not, if you're not directly saying, hey, go kill an immigrant, then I don't think you should be considered responsible for actions against immigrants, you know? Uh, I, it's, yeah. a, it's a dangerous game to play for sure. Yeah, but if you're going to establish a standard like that, right, where the, the left is going to continue calling, uh, you know, all that, that Trump supporters now, right, they're, they're, that ever since the white supremacist shootings, that Trump supporters are inherently racist because they're assuming that Trump's rhetoric is racist. And sure, some of the stuff he says can be seen as that, you, you know, and whatever, you, whatever sound bite you want to pull for the media to play that shows Trump calling, you know, you know group of Mexicans racist and murders. He was, after, in that instance, he was referring to the MS-13 gang, you know, so it's like how much it can really be, you know, out of context. But, um, yeah, if you're going to establish a standard, you have to apply to both sides. You can't just say that Trump supporters are going to be racist and that all racists are secretly white supremacist shooters. No, and you're not going to say that, like, all, all, like, all white men also who support Bernie Sanders are going to go and shoot congressmen because they want to get rid of the congressional dysfunction and, get rid of the politicians like no one can no no one gave bernie sanders shit for that happening no one gave kamala harris shit for having her name included in the manifesto by a shooter you know no like you said again with the with that ice thing about having to go in and trying to shoot up a content quote concentration camp um if you, i don't know if you heard about this one mitch the mitch mcconnell um the people are actually going and protesting outside of his house yeah and they're, you know, they're trying to, and that, and, and that in itself, you know, a crowd outside your house telling you that, tell, you know, threatening you, that's inciting violence. And it's so funny how the Democrats want to you know, go play off that narrative and then go to the house of, a, you know, Republican conservative and start, you know, saying those kind of remarks. And it's just, it's, it's kind of <laughs> insane. And the points where there's even some the videos from that, from out in front of his house where these, these people are screaming, F you, McConnell, right? We're going to stab, like, someone needs to stab you in the heart. They're, they're telling reporters, yeah, if I could, I'd probably kill him right now. It's like, how is that ever going to, con- that doesn't contribute to study at all if you're going to react in that way and, 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 you know, resort to violence and accuse that language and that someone, someone is saying is causing you to feel this way to a point of wanting to be violent. Like, that is a sign of, of itself immaturity and having, you know, being so rattled by, by speech should not be something, but it is. And sometimes, like you said, speech is trying to be constricted because of that, or restricted because of that, and, you know, it's bad, you know. Free speech is being restricted because you don't like what I have to say. If I'm not inciting violence, then there's no reason why it should be restricted at all. Yeah, exactly. And, and it's a standard that I don't think either side should be Im- implementing, and obviously we see it. A majority of the time from the, the left side media and even the senators and congress people on the on the left but it, it's something i i definitely don't want to see i know you don't want to see it. and i'm sure most people would agree that that's that's not the direction we should be going with the country when it comes to sp- 
when it comes to speech. Exactly. And <clears throat> this, this political election is definitely going to, um, you know, un, unintentionally incite a lot more violence to come. I can't even imagine once Trump actually starts going on his rallies that, you know, the amount of stories are going to be popping up left and right, how this, this Trump protester was kicked out. Oh, here's another, you know, here's another protester that got beat up. Here's another protester where Trump yelled, you know, get the F out or kick him out, you know, and it's all that. But then you go, and some of them, like that has happened, right, where the protests get kicked out. But the more gnarlier videos that I've seen, in the last election especially, is that these, you know, Ant, was it Antifa, whatever you call that bullshit. Antifa. And the, yeah, and then, and these three, and these Democrats, they, they, they respond in the same way, if not worse, to the Republican Trump protesters, right? So you, those people who would be going, wearing Make America Great Again, right? Out in public, going to these, going to, you know, protests or rallies. They're getting, they're getting jumped by 10, you know, anti-Trump Democrats. They're getting, they're getting beat up solely because of what they're wearing. They're not, you know, they're not inciting violence. They're just walking out the street, trying to peacefully protest like how so many Democrats do. It's kind of both ways. They're both are hypocritical, but at the same time, I can see both are being portrayed wrongly by by the media and, and those ways. But definitely can see and can expect a lot of a lot of violence in this next presidential election. Unfortunately, there's a lot more shooters now, and hopefully that will um, you know stop eventually. But time can only tell. Yeah. Well. Uh... Thank you for being on the show. Uh, that was a long conversation, uh, an hour, an hour and a half. Uh, but I think it was a good conversation. Some editing, some production over there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, you get the work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I I think it was a good conversation. I asked you a majority of the questions, but I liked how you asked me questions. We had a good, meaningful conversation, I'd say. And uh, I know we personally don't disagree a lot politically, but. Uh, I th I thought it was a good conversation we had. Uh, thank you for being on the show, and uh, I would love to have you back on the show sometime in the future. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Thank you for having me, Nick. I appreciate it. I think uh, you know discussions and conversations like this can can and should be more you know widely used rather than just always resorting to uh, stigmas, trying to assume things. So. I'd agree. I think this conversation went well, and uh, we should, I would definitely be more than welcome to uh, come again. All right, yeah. Uh, thank you for being on the show. Uh, have a good night. All right, thank you. Have a good night. All right, well, thank you guys for listening to another episode of Talking Politics. Please remember to uh, subscribe on iTunes, leave us a rating, and check out our social media accounts. Uh, uh, Facebook, Talking Polynix, and uh, on Twitter, at Talking Polynix. Polynix was too long. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, we'll talk to you guys next time.